We're in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 25. And you know, Matthew is really speaking to the Jewish people. It comes from a Jewish uh, context. And we're talking about disciples, and it's going to be come and see, come and follow. And if I was going to follow this out, come and suffer. Come and see, come and follow. And ultimately, as disciples of Jesus, there's an element of suffering that is involved. Now, most people don't want to talk about that, but that's the reality of it. If you would, stand with for reading of the Word of God, starting in verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They had immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their, fa- and their father and followed him. And Jesus went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God. Thank you. That was weak. Okay, let's try that again. Okay, let's let's keep up the momentum here. This is the Word of God. (laughs) That's the response right there. Please be seated. And let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time to study the amazing Word of the living God. Thank You that this is our template for life. This is how we order our life according to Your Word, Your will, your way, not according to the world. We are here to do things your way. Holy Spirit, speak to us today things that you want us to hear. And may we not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And thank you so much for time together with the body of Christ, the Spirit of God, and Jesus right in the center of us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. Now, last week we talked about Jesus' public ministry, and he started out with repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what was Jesus doing to the Jewish nation? He was offering the kingdom to the Jewish nation. Now, this is very significant because we know in Daniel chapter 9, we read the following, uh, following words about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Remember, 70 weeks were promised to the nation of Israel. And if you were in the Daniel teaching, you know that these are 70-week years. Watch what Daniel says. 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. 70-week years, and if we went over this really multiple times, it's week years, 70 times 7, 490 years were promised to the nation of Israel. The whole focus was the nation of Israel. Now, they had to do something. They had to believe in Messiah when he came for that time to go all the way through. They were in Babylonian captivity when they got this message that Persia was going to, going to let them go and go back and rebuild Jerusalem. If you read on the, in the next verses, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the target time in the city, until Messiah the Prince, or Messiah the Geed, or Messiah the King would come, there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 week years. And we knew exactly at the 69 week years, Jesus went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and accepted his kingship. Remember, if the rocks, if the rocks would cry out, He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the King. And that happened. But the Jewish people wanted to serve the false gods and rejected the Messiah, rejected him, and he was cut off and he was killed. And we had this picture up here of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel in our study, and we went through this multiple, multiple times, but from the decree to restore Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, until Messiah would come in, this is when it went out in Jeremiah, the decree went out in 445 B.C., there would be 69 week years, 173,880 days, it's actually calculated by Sir Robert Anderson, until Jesus would come in and accept his kingship on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. 
He was cut off, he was killed, and time stopped for the Jewish people. This is called the church age. The church age. We are in this age now, the age of grace. We will be raptured, and I believe very strongly in a pre-tribulation rapture that will be taken out of here before the tribulation starts. And this is one of the reasons that I believe this so fervently is because God's purpose during the entire tribulation is not dealing with Gentiles. He's not dealing with the church. He's refocusing on the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And for that seven-year period of time, through all of the, all the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments at the very end, God is pouring out his wrath The intention is to deal with Antichrist, to get the Jewish remnant's attention, to believe that he is the Messiah. And we know from our teaching that that will not occur until the very last part of the tribulation. In Hosea chapter 5, there's some suggestion that it's two or three days before Messiah comes back and rescues them, that they finally recognize their national sin of rejecting Messiah and they plead for him to return, and he then comes back to Basra or Petra, where they, are, where they have escaped the Antichrist, and he delivers them. And then he goes on his victory march up to Jerusalem, stands on the Mount of Olives, and declares he is the king, he is the Messiah. So that is what's happening. The Jewish people were, were choosing to follow false gods, kind of God, but also the false gods of the cultures around them. And God will not accept a divided heart. He will demand you to follow Him. You cannot follow your gods, your idols, and follow the true God at the same time. God does not stutter on this. Remember the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make yourself for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. God is very serious about Him being first in your life. Not down the pecking order, first in your life. And they finally have their final rejection. Now, the gap again between the 69th and the 70th week is called the church age. The church age. That's what we are in now. Now, the church age will, will, there will be a harvest in the church age called the fullness of the Gentiles. And again, if you were in our Revelation study, if you were in our Daniel study, you'll be very familiar with that word, fullness of the Gentiles. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? It's from Pentecost to the rapture of the church, an exact number of Gentiles will be saved and be brought into the church, be brought into fellowship with Messiah. So the scripture was Romans 11.25 when it says, I do not desire brethren, speaking to Roman Christians, I do not desire brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Remember that was mysterion, something that... That wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, that is revealed now. Paul is revealing now. Lest you be wise in your own opinion. For blindness in part, there's still Jews being saved, but very difficult, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all of Israel will be saved. The whole focus of the tribulation period is on the Jewish people, for them to know their Messiah and come and believe him. Acts 15:14 gives us another little indication of this. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles and taken out of them a people for his name. Now, I have another slide here. Now, this has dispensations on it. Just ignore this. I'm not talking about this now. I want you to notice this part right here. There is something called the time of the Gentiles. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until Jesus comes back. And to this day, the Jews have one-fourth of Jerusalem. The other three-fourths are occupied by different people groups. Okay? So Jerusalem is still trampled down from the Gentiles. So from Babylonian captivity until Messiah comes is the time of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles, again, is the church age, starting with Pentecost to the rapture, The tribulation period, I believe that God is dealing with Israel, and then we go into the millennial kingdom. That was just another clarification to hopefully bring you up to speed and and to remember what we had talked about in the past numerous times. So, uh, Remember what started Jesus' ministry. What was the impetus for him to get started? John the Baptist was put in prison. He was the forerunner. Remember, the forerunner has to be taken out of the way before the king can make his entrance. 
And so now the forerunner is taken out of the way. Jesus is starting his ministry, and his word is repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we also learn that Jesus had a Judean ministry that is not mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's mentioned by John. It was about a year that he ministered in Judea. He started out very slowly. He was in relative obscurity. Most people did not know him. He had a few disciples at the very beginning. But the momentum picked up after his clean, clean, uh, cleaning out the temple. Remember when the, when the uh, Jewish priests were taking advantage of the people and trying to extort money for them. Their, their sacrifice was inadequate at Passover. Their lamb was, was, was scarred somehow. Now you have to use the priest lamb. And they were extorting money from the people. And Jesus cleansed the temple and kicked out the money changers. And then after that, his ministry really took off. And many people were coming to him, and his disciples baptized more people than John the Baptist. So his ministry was growing in Judea, but when John got in prison, that was his message to leave. He also, in that time in Judea, spoke with Nicodemus. And that was a, that was a, a seminal moment for, for Nicodemus, for sure. But it was also a seminal no, moment for the church, because it tells us exactly what God requires of us. Now watch this dialogue that goes on between Nicodemus and Jesus. Most of you are familiar with this, but I think it is kind of startling. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 1, a ruler of the Jews. He was part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 that were ruling. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And notice how Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He sneaks out during the night. He doesn't want any of his buddies to see him. So he comes to Jesus by night. And he says these, watch the flattery. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus just blows right past the flattery. And he uses these words, Most assuredly I say to you, Nicodemus, you who thinks he's righteous, you who thinks he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, you who is a lawkeeper, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again. That is why we have the vernacular in Christendom, the Christianese, of being born again. Every human that comes into this world is born with their spirits dead and needs to be brought to life. And you must believe in Messiah Buddha won't do it, Muhammad won't do it, all the Hindu Vedas won't do it, any false religion won't do it, only Jesus Christ. He is open to everybody, but folks, the road is narrow that leads to the true God, and that is through Jesus Christ only. You must be born again. He goes from talking to Nicodemus, he makes his way up to Galilee to start his Galilean ministry, but he has us pit stop in Samaria, where he meets the woman at the well, and she's had... She's on her fifth man. She's had four husbands. She's living with the fifth one. And Jesus reveals himself to her. Now, I want you to think about something. Jesus went to Nicodemus, a high, high up in the hierarchy of Judaism. And he goes to this woman who would be the, kind of on the lower rung of, of, of certainly Judaism because the Jews hate the Samaritans. They were, they were half-breeds. They were mixed. They were not welcome. But not in Jesus' eyes. Jesus, not in Jesus' eyes, the Jewish people are very prejudiced. Now, I have a, a, a slide here to kind of compare the two. Now, again, Nicodemus was, was a Pharisee. She was a hated Samaritan, a man, a woman. Remember, a woman's status in Israel was very, very low. It was very much a, a, a patriarchal society. And actually, throughout the rest of the world, by the way, women are very much underclassed. In Christianity, God has elevated the position of women. Very much so. Very much so. He was a learned teacher. She was ignorant and unlearned. He was morally upright. She was sinful. He was a wealthy man. She was poor. He was the upper class. She was an outcast. He needed a Savior. She needed a Savior. They both needed to be saved. There is no hierarchy in the eyes of God. Everyone is savable. From there he goes and he starts his Galilean ministry. And he goes and he selects these first four guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, when we were in Israel, 
we had an, uh, our guide was Amir. Now, some of you guys have seen Amir's teachings. Well, he was our guide during that uh, the time when the, when the war started, and we all were walking around with gas masks and all that. And we started with 50 people that were going to go and ended up with 15. It was the best trip ever because Israel was empty, and we could go to every site without any type of lineup or anything. It was a wonderful trip, but we had Amir, and it was very special. And he made this comment. The people in Judea, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, look at the Galileans as, and he quotes, Galilean hillbillies. They were backwoods, backwards people, lacking in social graces, and that is where God, Jesus goes to select his twelve. And it starts out in verse 18 through 22, the discipleship's call, leave the old life and come and follow. That's what Jesus is asking each one of us to do. Leave the old life. Leave the stuff behind. Come and follow. And we're going to see what that means as we go through our teaching today. Verse 18 through 22. Now, with remembering that these men, I believe, had contact with Jesus in the Judean ministry. I think that they knew what John the Baptist was doing. They had in contact with Jesus through John the Baptist. They were some of the group of disciples that were following Jesus, but weren't the official twelve at that point. Watch what it says here. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. Now, do you think Jesus didn't know exactly whom he was going to select? He is there on a mission. He is sovereign. He knows exactly who he's calling for this position of, of real disciple, the twelve. Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They went about doing their business. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is the cry of Jesus to each one of us, follow me. And what do they do? They immediately left their nets and followed him. Peter didn't go back and say, hey, wifey, I'm going to go follow Jesus. Or Andrew didn't go back and say to whoever he had to. No, it was immediate. These guys must have been talking about their experience in Judea. And when Jesus came, their hearts must have just leapt inside of them and said, oh, yes, the master's calling. I will follow. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father. All three are in the boat, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father with all the nets to mend. Isn't that something? They just leapt out of the boat. Bye, Dad. See you later. I have to believe that they shared with Dad their experience in Judea. And when the master came, you don't see the father saying, Hey, hold on. Help me get the nets in. There's a lot to do here. No, they just hopped out, dad's in agreement, and off they go. Now, let's look at this. And again, I believe that Andrew, well, we know that, that Andrew brought, brought Peter to Jesus. In John chapter 142, Jesus looked at, at Andrew, looked at him, and he said, looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas Peter, which is translated the stone. Now, you know what's happening here? This is the first time Peter has really been introduced to Jesus. Andrew was all excited. Oh, here's the Messiah. Here's the Messiah. It's the first time he's introduced. And Jesus knows his name and knows how he's going to be changed. Remember, Peter was impulsive. He was loud. He was obnoxious. And he had a name change to Peter the Stone, Peter the Rock. That's what you're going to be, Peter. He was a slow learner, but he learned. I don't know about you guys. Sometimes we're on the slow track, okay? We take a little time to get going with this thing. I was on the slow track. Now, Peter and Andrew lived lives, lived changed, lives were changed when they followed the Messiah. And I want to emphasize this so much. Please hear this. Their lives were changed. Those genuinely saved are changed. Would you agree? They are changed. They are changed. A mark of genuine salvation is changed. Old you to new you. Old you to new you. No one is ever saved to remain the same. You get so many people that say, I'm getting some just-in-case Christianity. Just in case you're telling me this is true, I'm going to just in case, I'm going to say, I believe in Jesus. 
and then go about their lives and do whatever they want to do. Folks, that's not salvation. There's a lot of make-believers in Christianity. Be sure you realize that Jesus came to you to change you. Now, granted, it could be a really slow process. And some people could look at you and say, you're a Christian? I can't believe it. But hopefully over time, they will see that you are genuine, changed. Every believer is called to be changed. Come see, come follow. And Jesus Jesus to, to Peter and Andrew says, come and follow me. Follow me. Follow Jesus. Remember John 10:27. Jesus couldn't have been clearer on who he considers believers. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they hang back in the back, you know, are, are, have a little, little teeny relationship with me. No, they follow me. So that is the thing that we have to remember. Following Jesus is of the utmost importance. It's not peripheral. It's not, it's not some, something that some do and some don't. It is what we're all called to do. Their response was immediate. And no hesitation. They came immediately and they responded. James and John were next on the list. And immediately they left their boat and, they, and their father in the boat. I thought that was so neat. They just left Dad right there, and they followed Jesus. And they had their names changed. They had their names changed to th- Sons of Thunder, probably reflecting their disposition. And I think it's important that we kind of take on that mantle of sons and daughters of thunder, sons and daughters of passion, to be firm in your belief. True disciples, folks, hear this statement. True disciples will be willing to leave everything and sacrifice everything to follow Jesus. Now, that's what a true disciple is. Now, in Christianity, folks, there are carnal Christians. There are those that are in, but those folks, you're always questioning, are they? and they're questioning, are they in or are they not in? Now, fortunately, we're not the judge. We know that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, but you are not safe in carnal Christian land. You're safe when you're following the Master. That's when you're safe. Now, you might squeeze into heaven because it's by grace through faith, but, and Jesus knows who's our, those who are His. So we can't make that judgment. But man, you're not safe if you're doing your own thing off here someplace. Oh no. Oh no. Thunderous dispositions. True disciples will leave everything and follow Jesus. Think of what they would have missed if they hesitated. I have to go back and tell my wife. I'm not ready just yet, Jesus. You know, so many people do that. Salvation is of the Lord. God is the initiator of salvation. He comes at His time, not your time. There's nobody that can say, I'm just putting this off because... I'm just not, I'm just, it's not my time. I'm going to make up my time. You're not going to tell me, Jesus. That is not how it works. He comes, he softens hearts, he changes spirits, he takes blinders off of eyes, and there's a day when you realize this thing is real. And I have to get serious about this. There's a day when you have to say yes to Jesus, and that is on his time, not your time. Now, fortunately, he's really patient. And he keeps coming back, and I can say, thank you for that, Lord, because how many times did you reject him at the beginning? Not yet, Jesus. Not yet, Jesus. But something was planted. And he comes again, and he comes again, and he comes again. But then there's that defining time when your spirit is so moved, and you say, I can't do this anymore. I have to have this relationship with this Savior. I can no longer put this off. Folks, it's heaven and hell. Light and darkness. Life and death. And and the cry of Jesus is, choose life. Choose life. They would have left. They would have lost anything. Think of the honor it is to serve Jesus. Think of the adventure that these guys had. The amazing things they saw when they decided to follow Jesus. The unending discoveries that they went through. And then think of the rich young ruler who was so close Remember what he said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say? Keep the commandments. And he, he, in his arrogance, says, I've done all that. 
I've done it all perfect. And Jesus says, oh, okay, well, just sell everything that you have. And then he said, what did he say? Follow me. And he was very wealthy and he couldn't do it. He's a coveter. No one keeps the Ten Commandments. And then Peter, after this dialogue about the rich young ruler, Jesus says this, We have left everything, Jesus, to follow you. And Jesus makes this statement. I thought this was so, so, so wonderful. Jesus, to those who follow him, and said he, you will receive abundantly now and in the age to come blessings. Now and in the age to come. See, it's great. We all look forward to going to heaven. I'm, this is not our home. We're aliens and strangers. We're passing through. This is a miserable kind of existence here. Even in the best state. We're in America. We're in the best state, folks. If you compare it with the rest of the world, this is, this is nirvana compared to the rest of the world. But we're still kind of miserable here. Kind of miserable. I think we're a lot miserable here. It's not so much fun here. But the blessing, it is more blessed to be with Jesus here than to be without him. I think he blesses us over and over and over. And I'm not a prosperity gospel guy, but I think that you walk with Jesus Christ, your life will be better. It will be better. Following Jesus, folks, is difficult. It is becoming more and more difficult in this culture. Again, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult in Iran, Afghanistan, China, those places. You know that they're being persecuted. And it's becoming uncomfortable. We feel ourselves squeezed here, don't we? As, as our world is changing. We're squeezed. And it will require something for you. And hopefully you remember from our last teaching, it will require Holy Spirit grit. Holy Spirit grit, that rod of iron up your spine that allow you to stand. Let me define for you the call of discipleship. Call of discipleship defined. It's the immediate detachment from everything in this world that holds you back from really following the Messiah. See, God's not looking for, for, for lip service. It's not about lip service. It's about a dedicated life to Him. Immediate detachment from all the glitz and the glitter of the world. And there's a lot out there, folks, that's attractive to us. Remember the little carrot dangling in front of each one of us? Each one of us has something we want to grab onto. Remember your flesh pulls? Your flesh is still alive. Your flesh still wants its way. Your flesh wants to go back to the old ways, the way things were. That's how the flesh works. And Jesus has said, no, he's calling you to move on, move forward, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. And then the devil's deception, remember his mind games. And how were we told to deal with him? Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's how we fight him. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and he will come near to you. That is what we are to do. Take your stand with your gospel boots have some guts and say no when the bait is dangled. You can make a faith choice instead of a flesh choice. We've talked all about that stuff. Now, Jesus in his calling here, he's calling three specific men. And he's calling his inner circle. And I have a slide here kind of showing you. Jesus had 70 disciples. When he was in Judea, when he was in Judea, he had a few disciples, and it became more popular. Then it went down to 70, and then we had the 12, but he had his inner circle. Now, this is significant, and I wonder, why did Jesus just choose three? I think in Jesus' humanity, he could only input into three most intensely. And these three had, were, were going to be called specially. They had special things that they were going to do. James was going to be the first martyr. John would be exiled to Patmos and write the book of Revelation and several other books. And then Peter would write a couple of books, and then he was the one significant at Pentecost that preached, and 3,000 were added to the church. They, they were special. They saw the transfiguration. Only these three saw the transfiguration where Jesus tore apart his is his outer being and his glory shined through. And they were blown away. Blown away. They were also at the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke 8 49. 
and they were also with Jesus in Gethsemane. They fell asleep, (laughs) all three of them. But they were with Jesus in Gethsemane. Remember what Jesus was doing? Pleading with the Father. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then he gives these great words, but not my will, but your will. Folks, that's how you pray. If there's any way, God, that this thing can be lifted from me, lift it from me, but not my will, but your will. Oh, you can pray for anything that you want, but you also want to pray the will of God in the situation. Jesus, folks, he had his inner circle. Do you think he loved that inner circle more than the other ones? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Jesus loves all people equally. There's no, he's not a respecter of purpose, of persons. But these people that had a special calling had a special anointing. Now, oftentimes in Christendom, you hear the anointing, the anointing, the anointing, the anointing. Oh, you, did you have the anointing? You had the, well, if you want, well, you know what anointing is? It's the empowerment by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task that you're given. So you want to have a big anointing? Get ready for a big call. And you know what that's going to be? Really uncomfortable. You look where these guys went, and you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, and people that were killed all over the place. They had an anointing from God that was was super-duper, but they also had a calling that was super-duper that God enabled them to accomplish. The call to discipleship is to all believers. A disciple is this. It's a learner, a pupil, one who accepts instruction and makes it his rule of conduct. See, Jesus changes character, which is reflected in your conduct, in the way that you act in this world. They're not divorced. Jesus changes character, which changes your conduct, the way that you, that you act in this world. Your conduct will be changed no matter what. You are changed, no matter what comes. A side note, being a disciple of Christ is not simply saying, I'm a disciple. I'm a disciple. Can't you see I'm a disciple? I'm a disciple. No, it is not that. It will require sacrifice. It will require courage. And it will require grit, true grit, to be a disciple of Messiah. You will not be walking in step with this world, and that is not easy. For any human, we always talk about peer pressure with kids. Baloney, it's peer pressure with all of humanity. Everybody's into this indoctrination thing today. We're all immersed in being indoctrinated to a change in our world. And I'm suggesting to you that adults are falling for it left and right. It is not just a young person thing. It is for every person. It will take grit to go against the wave of this world. The truth Those men and women of grit will come and see, come and follow, and I might also say come and suffer. And that's not the American way. You won't hear this most places, but it's the truth. It's the truth, and you need to know the truth. You need to know what is coming. You need to know the changes in our country. Jesus made it very clear. If you're going to follow him, he made it very clear in John chapter 15, 18 through 20. If they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you. If they persecute him, they're going to persecute you. You think you're, you're any different than, well, we are different than Jesus, but we're going to be treated as a follower like he was treated. Wasn't very nice. Wasn't very nice. I want to suggest to you this, and I think you know this. This is a must know. Not all disciples are true disciples. Many left Jesus. In John chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about the bread of life, remember Jesus, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. It was one of the I am statements. He said, whoever eats my body and drinks my blood is a real follower of me. Now, people have taken that to mean The Catholic Church in particular has taken that to mean communion. That is not referring to communion. That has not even been established at this point. Eating his blood, eating his eating his blood, eating his body and drinking his blood had to was referring to a full all-out commitment to follow him, to follow him. And in John six six six, 
Kind of strange numbers, aren't they? John 666, the Antichrist number, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Oh, no mas, Jesus. You mean you want me to, to, to do something to, to really follow you and what you're doing? I'm just here for the show. I'm just here for what I can get out of this. That's what I want out of Christendom. I want the healings. I want to see the spectacular. I want to see the demons cast out. I want to see all the spectaculars. I'm not really here to follow you. you got, are you kidding? You want me to actually take up my cross? Deny myself and follow? Yes, yes, that's what Jesus is asking. They could not bear the cost. And I can't, am I, I'm saying this loud and clear, I think, but let me say this loud and clear. Anyone who truly follows Jesus and makes a difference a difference in their world must count the cost. And he says this in Luke chapter 14 so exquisitely. Watch what he says here. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, he has this huge following. They're following him. Thousands of people are following. And what does Jesus do? He thins the crowd. He thins, he's not encouraging, he's not telling, it's not like the, the movement today. Tell them whatever you can tell them to get more people to come in to tithe so we can build bigger structures. And that's, No, that is not what he's doing. He's thinning the herd. He speaks this way. If anyone comes to me, and then he says, and he's talking about the most intimate level of relationship, talks about the family, and does not hate his father, and that hate it simply means to love less. It doesn't mean vehement hate. It means to love less. You must have Jesus as the number one. Even your most intimate family has to come under him. That's what he is saying here. Who does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yet his own life cannot be my disciple. Cannot. I must be first. Your idol can't be first. Another human can't be first. I must be first. And whoever does not bear his cross... Die to the self-life. Cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost where he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who seek it will begin to mock him. Jesus is thinning the herd. He's looking for people that really will follow him and love him. That's what he is doing. All out for Jesus. Not all who start the race finish the race. Remember the parable of the soils? The sower sows the, sows the word, lands on the wayside, stolen by the enemy. Lands on the rock, oh, looks great, looks wonderful. Sprouts up right away, yay Jesus, yay Jesus. And when persecution or difficulty comes, they fall away. And then it was among the thorns and they got choked out by the cares and the problems of this world. Now, some people believe these could be carnal Christians. Some people believe these are lost. Don't know that answer, to be honest with you. But all I know is I don't want to be in the rock, and I don't want to be on the thorns. I want to be on the good soil, which produce 30, 60, 100-fold. Those are the ones you want. Those you know are bearing fruit with patience are the ones in the family of God. The 12 disciples, folks, we're in for an extraordinary journey with Christ. It starts out with a bang in the next verses that we go through. They see all these miracles. All the miracles. It's exciting. The disciples are in for an extraordinary journey. Fulfilling. Purposeful. Come and see the incredible things that Jesus is going to do. You know what these guys are doing? Something that God calls us to do today. Join God where He is at work. So you don't you just don't make the thing up on your own. You don't go do whatever you want to do and say, Hey God, come and join me. Oh no. That is the absolute opposite. We are to see where God is working, and we are to join God where He is working. He will impress upon your spirit the things that He wants you to do. You will know where He is working because there will be some sort of results from what you're what you're doing. You want a productive life? You know, some people, why was I born? You ever run into that question? Why am I here? What is my purpose? 
And if you're really honest, you look around at your life, and even if you have it the best of the best, you're going, is this all there is? I mean, you can have boats, and you can have planes, and you can have trains, and you can have this, and you can have that, and you can still be as empty as a homeless person on the streets. Empty. What is our purpose? You want to have a purposeful life? Follow the Master. You want to have a full life? Follow the Master. You want to have an extraordinary life? Follow the Master. Come and see the impossible. Come and see what Jesus does with a changed life. Come and see with somebody that will leave the stuff of this world and say, I'm following Him. Now, you might lose a lot of stuff that this world values, but you'll walk through this with an adventure you can't believe. We're in an adventure. Watch the disciples. They're going to witness the impossible. They're going to come and see. Verse 23 through 25. Jesus went about all Galilee. Remember, that's where he did most of his ministry. Two-thirds of his ministry is up in Galilee. In their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. That's Gentile country, spreading fast. And they brought to him all, all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And I'm wondering, what is this torments thing? So I looked it up, and it means those who are at the bottom of life. Those who have hit their bottom. And Jesus says, oh, come to me, and I will start to lift you out of the miry clay. Remember, there was a song long ago, He picked me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on the rock to stay. He put a song in my heart today, the song of praise, hallelujah. And it goes on by a real singer, but anyway, it was a... He picked us out of the miry clay, set us on the rock. And you know what that means? My life goes from being unstable to stable. Rock-like. Purpose. Meaningful. Value. The world might not see it, but I see it because I'm connected to my Jesus. Torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and He healed them, and great multitudes followed Him from Galilee from the Decapolis, which is Gentile country, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, which is also Gentile country. Jesus had a massive, massive, massive following at this point. And next week, he withdraws from the massive following, goes to the top of the hill, and meets with his disciples. And he gives the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And he tells us how to live here in this world with kingdom principles. That's what he tells us. We'll get more into that next time. And I'll also mention that at the end again. But anyway, that was a leap forward. These people that are following Jesus now, the great majority are following him for what he's going to do next. What is he going to do next? The excitement is almost palpable within the crowd, within the crowd that's following him. And he begins his ministry. Note, Jesus had a threefold ministry. Teaching, preaching, and healing. That is what he did. Jesus made it very clear, though, that his primary mission was preaching. Mark 1.38 says this. Now, this is said after he has healed a multitude of people. People are flocking to him, and he makes this statement to his disciples. Let us go into the next town that I should do more miracles there. Oh, no, that I may preach there, Caruso, herald the truth. Priests there also, because of this, for this purpose, I have come forth. I have come forth. Remember, they wanted to see the show. Jesus wants them to hear the word. People came from far and wide. Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. Jesus had a huge audience, and then he's going to be on the, on the mount giving the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Listen to this. Why did the miracles, what did the miracles really demonstrate? It demonstrated that Jesus was the Messiah. Refer back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. He says, the, eye, the eyes of the blind are open, the ears are open, the lame leap, the tongues of the dumb are, are set free, and they start to sing. He has come to set the captives free. 
John the Baptist, when he was in prison, wondered if Jesus was the Messiah. And he quotes these words. John, look at this. I'm the one that's fulfilling all this. And John could then rest and have his head chopped off by Herod. But what else? Jesus also proved dominion over the demonic realm. He cast out demons. Jesus could reverse the result of the fall. Sickness, disease, and death. That's what Jesus did. And don't, don't underestimate, these things still happen. More on that in just a second. Some closing thoughts. Come see Jesus. Come follow Jesus. Come and see. Come and see what the Master will do. Come and see how He can change your life. Come and see. Come and see. It's not going to be cupcakes and cherries all the time. But you will have someone to go through this life with that will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not like your regular friends. who, As soon as you don't walk lockstep with them, they cast you off. That isn't that what Jesus does. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Come and see this one. The woman at the well said, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Come and see this man, the Samaritan woman. Philip to Nathaniel. Come and see Nathaniel. I have found the Messiah. I have found the Messiah. There's excitement there. It's a startling discovery when we realize who Jesus really is. The Savior of the world. God incarnate. Folks, Jesus changes lives. He changes eternities. He changes our present conditions. Don't underestimate that. Don't, we, we know that we're eternity focused. We know that we'll be out of here someday. Hip, hip, hooray. But He also enters into our situations while we're here. Jesus changes everything. And He can break in to any situation at, at the least expected time. At the least expected time. You, I believe you have been there. The only God can do this place. Have you been there? Only God can do this. Only God can change this. Only God can. This is the place where miracles happen. You know, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. You know the Don Moen song. I've, I've tried to sing it in the past. I won't brutalize you today. But the words are this. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide, hold me closely to His side, and watch these words, with love and strength for each new day. He doesn't project months into the future. He doesn't project weeks into the future. He tells you, I'll be your strength right now, for the next day, for the next moment of time. With love and strength for each new day, He will make a way he will make a way. Oh, God will make a way. I can't help it. When there seems to be no way, He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to His side. With love and strength for each new day, He will make a way. He will make a way. That's our God. He will make a way. Folks, I can't say this loud enough. God still breaks in. God still heals. God still saves. Never give up. When your world is shaken, and it will be, you're a human. You live here. This is shakable country. This is earthquake country. This is oceans roar and foam country. God will make a way. From time to time, God can and does break in and changes the impossible. We call these miracles. We don't call these regulars. We don't call these dailies. We call these miracles, the unusual, the impossible. Hear the prophet Jeremiah. Hear his words. Jeremiah 32:26. Then the word now, now the setting is this. Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem. Temples destroyed, cities destroyed, people going into captivity, and God is saying, oh, Jeremiah, after 70 years, you're going back, and it'll be rebuilt. And Jeremiah can't see it. It's impossible. But watch what the God of the impossible says. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. That's what you need at your impossible time. The word of the Lord come and be implanted in your heart. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Something I must hear. And he says these words. Put it on your refrigerator. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Now what's Jeremiah going to say? No, no, God, nothing is too hard for you. Mary, when she the Immaculate Conception, when she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit's miracle, the angel says to Mary these words, Nothing is impossible with God, Mary. With God, all things are possible. Never give up. You never know when you will be surprised by God. You do not know. So keep believing, keep trusting, and you know what our theme, th- theme, our theme, song, our theme song is? I will trust in the Lord until I die. Let's say it together. I will trust in the Lord until I die. That's right. Disciples of Christ, disciples of Christ, come see, come follow, come be amazed at what Jesus can do, and we know for eternity we will be amazed then, and I believe we can be amazed now. I love it. Disciples of Christ say, Amen. Now next week the huge crowd is there, like I said before. They want to see the show. Jesus withdraws. He's at a perfect spot on the mountain. We're, in, we're, 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 we're at the spot where Jesus is talking, and Amir tells us the acoustics are perfect. A banana field was down in the, down in the valley representing all the people. And you could hear Jesus speaking to these twelve, and that acoustics was so perfect that the thing just went right across the valley. So all the people heard what Jesus was saying to the twelve and the Beatitudes. He had a massive crowd that he inputted. And, they, and there, they are taught how to live kingdom principles, to live as disciples of Christ in a world of darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've allowed us to study your word. We're so thankful for it, Lord. I, I cannot say thank you enough. It's amazing to me how so many people just don't read it or don't want to read it or discard it. But God, it's the living word. It's what you've given us to live by. It's proven itself to be true. I mean, this is, this is the only holy book in the world that has proven itself to be true. And for the multiple reasons that we've given in the past, thank you for not leaving us blind. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that what is said from this word is the truth. We're hearing the truth of the living God spoken to us from this word. Thank you, Lord. I just say thank you. With all the deception that is going on, with all the tugs of the world wanting to take us away from you, your word, your spirit is stronger than anything that the world can throw at us. May we be men and women of grit, stand like the bull in the blizzard, stand like the lineman, and say, I will not be moved. I will not compromise I will follow you, Jesus, no matter the cost, because you're worth it. You gave all for me. Now may I dedicate my life to you. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.